Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. The following update is from IDOC Watch regarding a struggle underway at Indiana's Wabash Valley Prison. We have received word that two inmates at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility are currently on hunger strike, protesting the violation of internal policies. The two inmates, Bassford, DOC number 260938, and Adams, DOC number 249615, are being held in the Mental Health Segregation Unit of the CCU. Their strike began on July 2nd in response to cruel, harsh, unfair, and abusive treatment the deputies dish out upon us. Bassford and Adams detail how meal portions are not reaching the required 2,800 calorie per day minimum, as well as the violation of policy number 0204102, page 18, section P, which states that after 60 days of disciplinary segregation, offenders are to be permitted administrative segregation privileges. These include religious services, library services, education, recreation, and unrestricted commissary food items. Bassford and Adams are requesting that WVCF follow its own policies regarding these matters and that they both be transferred to the Mental Health Segregation Unit at Westville, where they believe they will not face the same selective treatment. The issues these inmates bring forward touch on structural problems throughout the IDOC and Wabash Valley especially. The treatment of inmates with mental illness has been the subject of recent litigation between the Indiana ACLU and the IDOC. Indiana courts ruled in 2012 in the case of Indiana Protection and Advocacy Services Commission versus Commissioner, Indiana Department of Correction, that the IDOC was in violation of the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution by keeping mentally ill prisoners in solitary confinement. Just this year, a class action settlement has been reached wherein the IDOC has agreed to not keep, quote, seriously mental ill, end quote, inmates in solitary confinement, as well as to provide, quote, standard minimum treatment, end quote, to those same prisoners. That the IDOC is not holding up its end of the contract is obvious to all who have a loved one facing mental health issues while incarcerated in the state of Indiana. For the last few months, IDOC Watch has encouraged supporters to call Wabash Valley Correctional Facility regarding the ongoing confinement and withholding of treatment and medication from Dennis Kendall. These three inmates are far from an exception. Additionally, restrictive diets are a universal problem throughout the IDOC. Private corporations like Aramark, which provide food services in Indiana prisons, profit by serving food in containers labeled, not fit for human consumption, for zoo animals and convicts only. Currently, the administration at Wabash Valley is keeping the temperatures on the CCU where Bassford and Adams are being held unbearably low. The combination of non-nutritious food and harsh environment means that many inmates must turn to commissary items to supplement their diets and caloric intake. Suspending inmates from commissary services is a typical retaliatory practice for corrections officers and is nothing more nor less than consciously enforced starvation. We believe the condition of Bassford and Adams to be critical and are requesting all supporters to call in to Wabash Valley as well as the IDOC's central office to voice their concern. 
Concerned listeners can call Warden Richard Brown at 812-398-5050 if they want to express support for the striking prisoners. According to the New York Times, for the first time, a pharmaceutical company has halted an execution, at least temporarily. The company, Alvagen, argued that the state of Nevada had illegally obtained its drug Midazolam with the intention of using the drug and two others to execute Scott Dozier. A district judge issued a temporary restraining order to prevent Nevada officials from using the drug for lethal injection. This move by the drug company intensified the struggle between officials in states that use the death penalty and drug manufacturers that object to having their products used to kill people. Critics of the three-drug cocktail that was to be used in Dozier's death warned that it could cause a long and painful death. They said that midazolam does not render a person fully unconscious and that the opioid fentanyl that was to follow it would make Dozier feel as though he were suffocating. Earlier this year, prisoners in South Carolina announced their call for a national prison strike to begin on August 21st, the anniversary of the death of revolutionary prisoner George Jackson. Since then, prisoners in Delaware, Florida, Louisiana, Missouri, and now North Carolina have responded with their support for this call. The following is a proposal from a North Carolina prisoner to establish a truce and join the mass demonstration. He's asked not to be anonymous and for outside supporters to spread this call in mainstream media as well as inside publications. He writes, This is a call to all of those confined within the Department of Public Safety to make a stand by resisting against the cycle of oppression and repression starting on August 21, 2018. Refuse all physical labor such as janitorial duty, barber duty, clothes house duty, and kitchen duty until our demands are met. I'm calling on my real right Olas, my loyal locks, all Moorish misnamers, all G's with the blackest hearts, both Muslims and neutral prisoners who desire a change to unify and form a statewide formation to abolish these harsh living conditions and demand the following. All mental health prisoners who've been on lockup for longer than 30 days to be released immediately. Annihilate all forms of long-term solitary confinement for the whole prison commune here in North Carolina. Abolish the mandatory minimum 85% act for the whole prison commune of North Carolina. No human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole. Re-establish the opportunity of parole for the whole North Carolina prison commune. Rectify the structure of the SRG policy and the requirements to profile one as SRG. Some of these restrictions are very inhumane. For example, once one is profiled as SRG, he or she cannot receive visits from anyone but his or her immediate family. This excludes the mother or father of anyone's children. Most of us profiled as SRG are being deprived of visiting our children. Being profiled also restricts from obtaining a job and classes that could put us on gain time. Annihilate the $10 fee for infractions. Every write-up one receives, $10 is deducted from our personal account and given to the state. Yearly, this is over a million dollar revenue for the state. Restore educational and rehabilitation programs such as college courses, vocational schooling, etc. so we have something to help us obtain a job once released, so we won't fall back on the cycle of the system. Being that North Carolina prisons already have contracts with both JPay and Union Supply, offer all the other options they have, such as JPay's email system, electronic visitation, as well as MP3 players and downloadable music. Comrades, it is big facts that throughout history, any unified demonstration has ended with accomplishments. 
the mass hunger strikes in 2010 in California, the uprising last year at the Vaughn facility in Delaware, even the Lucasville Five have improved prison conditions for all Ohio prisoners held on Supermax with their acts of solidarity. Five men alone. We act as if North Carolina hasn't birthed any solid revolutionaries. Let's not forget the comrade Robert F. Williams. This was one man who took on the KKK. The average coker waitress is paid about $9.50 an hour for the same duties done by us in these prison kitchens for 45 cents a day. That's not even 2% of the minimum wage. Maintenance crews and plumbers are paid anywhere from $14 to $20 an hour, but you work in feces-infested waters all day for $1 a day here. Comrades, you're slaving all day for one soup and a honey bun. You're slaving all day to finance your own incarceration as well as others. I'm aware that some of you are dependent on the 45 cents to a dollar a day due to a lack of family support. This is where the solidarity of the prison commune is effective. We that are financially stable should provide a community kitty for those who don't have family support on the outside. This shouldn't just fall on one or two of us, but it should be a responsibility of all of us that are financially stable. It is the duty of us conscious comrades and generals of these lumpen organizations, gangs, to lead the way and enlighten the comrades of their rights. If one isn't conscious of the rights they're being deprived of, then there is a minimal desire to resist. The Willie Lynch syndrome is deeply ingrained in the majority of North Carolina prisoners. The cure to this syndrome of envy, distrust, and fear the whole time has been solidarity and revolutionary consciousness. There must be masses at every one of these razor wire plantations in North Carolina willing to lay down and resist starting August 21st, 2018 until the above demands are met. Not met with promises, but with action. Those of you in leadership positions must lay down the law and demand that all subordinates adhere to this call for resistance. If some of you are not in positions to resist through refusing to offer your labor, then find any way to resist that will affect the daily cycle of confinement and cost the facility money. Hunger strikes, refusing to come out for rec, etc. Governor Roy Cooper will realize that his prized surplus budget that he boasts about will be drained within a month due to having to pay outside companies to do all the jobs that we do for free. The majority of you generals know me and I know you. We are both conscious and know what needs to be done, so let's do it. We are the cause of our own stagnation. Once the prison commune witnesses the hierarchy compromising, then there'll be no limit to what we can accomplish. We are limited to what we limit ourselves to. Impossible is nothing, nothing is impossible. Dare to struggle, dare to win, until every cage is empty, shine white. Lanesboro Correctional Institute. The IDOC Watch reports from Northern Indiana that on June 23rd, about 50 people protested outside of Indiana State Prison, or ISP, in Michigan City to pressure the prison to change the abuse and neglect people incarcerated at the facility have been experiencing at the hands of ISP staff. Some of the demands of the protesters and inmates were met. Contact visits were restored, food sharing during visitation was allowed again, and the administration promised to bring more jobs and better wages to the facility. On August 25th, we're going back to ISP to continue to put pressure on and get more changes made. There are still huge problems, including bedbug and cockroach infestations, medical neglect and malpractice, food unfit for human consumption, constant harassment and shakedowns by guards, lack of educational and rehabilitation programs, mail censorship, there is still no grievance process, and it is a dangerous old building. To keep the pressure up before the next protest, you can call into the warden of Indiana State Prison, Ron Neal, at 219-874-7258 and demand that the above grievances be addressed. Again, that's 219-874-7258. The 
The following is a report from a group of anti-raid activists organized to protect immigrant communities in London, England. They mobilized a demonstration against detention centers in the midst of mass protests against Trump last week. This strategy of interlinking struggles might prove essential next month, as solidarity efforts with the national prisoner strike, beginning on August 21st, swirl together with the ongoing resistance to ICE as well as the teacher strikes planned across the U.S. This group in the U.K. reports, quote, Last night, after the Trump demo, a group turned up to protest at the operational base for raids of the Home Office on Millier Street near London Bridge. To their total surprise, they found an unknown person or group appeared to have smashed the windshield of one of the snatch vans earlier on." Unquote. Clearly, anger against immigration enforcement is even more widespread than we'd imagined. The demo expressed solidarity with migrants resisting the raids in Chinatown this week and anger and sorrow at the killing of a 23-year-old Sudanese migrant in Newport. We are also sharing more news from IDOC Watch, accompanied by requests for solidarity phone calls. They say, James Phillip, DOC number 106333, who we recently organized two call-ins for, was finally moved from Wabash Valley Correctional Facility to Westville Correctional Facility as a result of our call-in. Now, however, James is on the lockup unit at Westville CF, and he is being held in a cell without drinking water, the water coming out of his faucet is brown, and a clogged toilet. In addition, money that was sent to him in the final days he was at Wabash Valley has yet to be transferred to his account at Westville. You may call Westville Warden Mark Sevier at 219-785-2511 or the Office of IDOC Commissioner 317-232-5711, extension 0, and then ask to speak to the commissioner and demand that the faucet and toilet in James' cell be repaired and that his money be transferred immediately. Supporters of Michael Guerin, or Little Feather, have shared this update. He's a water protector from the coastal band of the Chumash Nation, raised in Santa Barbara, California. Little Feather was charged with civil disorder and use of fire to commit a federal felony offense, arising from events of October 27, 2016. On February 8, 2018, he changed his plea in accordance with a non-cooperating plea agreement with the prosecution. Under this plea agreement, the use of fire charge, which carries a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years and the possibility of up to 15 years in prison, will be dropped entirely, and Little Feather will take responsibility for aiding in civil disorder. The plea agreement was accepted by Judge Daniel Hovland, who is presiding over the case. Prosecutors and the defense jointly recommended a sentence of 36 months on the civil disorder charge although the judge did have the authority to go as high as five years. This is a non-cooperating agreement, relating only to Littlefeather's own actions and does not require any testimony or information about anyone else. Littlefeather and his legal team were facing monumental challenges, including the prospect of trial with a hostile jury pool, limited discovery, and the risk of a long prison sentence. His sentencing was on May 30th, 2018 at 1 p.m and he was sentenced to 36 months in prison. Littlefeather is the first no-dapple political prisoner. Littlefeather came to Standing Rock with his family. While there, he was of service to the elders and the community. Daily, he would check on the elders, retrieve water, chop and deliver wood, cook, clean, give rides, rescue those in need, and so much more. 
Littlefeather created special relationships with those around him. He has a giving heart and a spirit to those that know him. His indigenous spirit will be forever changed by his experiences in Standing Rock. He will likely be at USP Hazleton for the next 21 months. Please shoot him a letter, card, and see how he is. Show him some love and support. Littlefeather currently does not have access to organizational fiscal support for his commissary expenses, such as stamps, phone calls at $3.45 for 15 minutes, email, supplemental food for the horrible meals the BOP provides. It's also possible to make a monetary donation at www.freelittlefeather.com donate. This week, Jody Polk from Gainesville, Florida, describes her time inside a women's prison while sharing cutting observations on growing up as a black woman in a white supremacist society. She also makes an urgent call to tear down our inner prisons, a call that we think resonates with the torrent of news we're sharing this week. Prisoners across the country are breaking down the mental and material walls which isolate them, producing new forms of solidarity and collective organizing. For the first time, we couldn't include all of the news sent to us for lack of space in the episode, so we'll at least give a shout out to the prisoners in the Orange County Jail on hunger strike, and to Malik Washington in Texas, who remains on administrative segregation as retaliation for his dignity and dissent. This rush of organizing on the inside bodes well for the national prison strike called for this August 21st, as caged human beings across the U.S. evaluate which prisons, whether built out of concrete, steel, or just a prejudice, they'll be able to challenge. Here's Jody. My name is Jody Polk. I'm from Gainesville, Florida. In 2007, I was sentenced to eight years in prison, followed by five years probation. And I remember when I went to the county jail to turn myself in um, in April of 2007, I was relieved. I crawled up on that jail bed. It was the first time I had ever been in jail. At the time, I was a um, dual enrollment student. I was in college for dental assisting. I was a Bell's bondsman in Gainesville, Florida. And on the outside, typically people, you know, thought I had it all together, but most people didn't understand the prison that I was living in in the inside. So when I got to the county jail for the first time, my first time ever being arrested, um, it was honestly a relief to leave behind what I knew as life. I never expected to go to prison. You know, I thought as soon as that judge saw that on paper I was a good girl, she let me out of there and I could manipulate her like I could manipulate anyone. And so um, I was sadly mistaken. My charges were very serious and she sentenced me to the minimum and I went off to prison. And I remember for me, um, I did seven years off the eight. It That experience saved my life. You know, um, my community that I lived in and existed in before incarceration was more of a prison than that actual physical place that I spent that time in. So when we're talking about organizing against women's prisons, it is important to me um, to understand what prisons women typically find themselves in. I remember while I was incarcerated, I was reading the book, The Secret, and there was a, a part in there where she said, um, Wherever you're at right now, you created, you know, that space. And I remember thinking, like, she was a fraud. It was actually a few years after reading the book that I understood that. Even with being in prison, I never understood how my behavior actually perpetuated me being there 
And then one step further, I did not realize how my community and my society had already determined that I was going to be there before I even had a chance. Growing up in Gainesville, Florida, I was black, obviously. I'm a woman. I was overweight. I was smart. I love to learn. And my voice sounds white. So for a very long time, at a very young age, in elementary school, it was my very own peers and community that pressed upon me and trained me to make a choice of who I was going to be. And of course, there's no way that I could choose not to be black. And even for little people in elementary school, there was an understanding that to be black, that was the equivalent of incarceration, of drug abuse, of being a thug, of, you know, being the baddest bitch, of being, that defined being black. It was in prison for me, you know, that for the first time, I learned about how to have relationships and care about other women. It was in prison that I got an opportunity to learn what it meant to be a black woman. It was in prison for me that I honestly even got the space to hear myself for the first time in a way that I could determine what was the truth and what was a lie. So when we're talking about organizing against uh, women's prisons, it's important to me that we learn to organize with women. Because now I'm the executive director of the Florida Council for Incarcerated, formerly incarcerated women and girls in Gainesville, Florida. And what we do is to empower women to find freedom from the inside out. When we're dealing with um, formerly incarcerated women and women who are currently incarcerated, if we can't deal with the prison of substance abuse, if we can't tear down the prison of poverty, if we cannot tear down the prison of sexual abuse, if we can't tear down the prisons of secrets, if we can't tear down the prison of what it means to be black inside of our very own communities, tearing down physical prisons is just a temporary fix. It was through empowering me, every woman that sat in that Florida prison system that empowered me, you know, to be who I am, that power translated way out of side of that institution and empowers me now to stand in spaces that I never thought that I could be in, to not only be a voice for myself, but to also be a voice for my sisters and also that bridge between organizing in a way that allows us to participate in our own freedom. It is important to me that I don't just get to experience the powers of other, but in determining and recognizing and finding awareness of my own power that I'm able to practice and learn how to use that. You know, even being here, I met Paniotti um, with Fight Talks of Prisons in Gainesville, Florida, and Karen with IWALK inside of um, Gainesville, and they modeled a lot to me of what was, of who I am. You know, finding myself and you all, because being in our communities oftentimes isn't the safest place, you know, for us to be. And so that is one of my concerns as a formerly incarcerated woman. When I hear people talking about tear down prisons and, you know, meeting prison abolitionists, it's like, okay, we're tearing down the physical prison, we're tearing down the prisons, but what about the prisons that we live in all day long? You know? I have a brother who did prison time. I have a younger brother who identifies as a woman who's doing 30 years mandatory. He's not even 28 yet in a Florida prison system. A woman doing prison in a man's facility. And it's just like, you know, it's so normal in the women's prison. 
I remember the Miami Herald laid out all these articles about the abuse in the inside, and we see people talking about all the abuse and the bad stuff that happens, you know, in prison. And in the prisons that I was in, in the Florida prison, like, not to say that bad things didn't happen, but the fact that we were so accustomed to it, especially in women's prison, when you're talking about the abuse from a man, we were so used to that, that it didn't. we didn't even notice what was going on in the inside. I would have never knew after my incarceration to talk about the abuse, to talk about not having to use toilet paper as menstrual pads, to talk about an officer giving us two sheets, squares of toilet paper and giving that to you to use, to watch women bleed on themselves and all of us stand up to the, the window, the bubble is what we call it, to get one pad they would give us just so that woman could have enough just to get through a few days. I never understood that those things was abuse. Mm -hmm. I never understood that those things were wrong until I met people like you. Because honestly, that was my reality before we even got, before I got to prison. Those things are normal. Normal. So if we're going to organize against women's prisons, organize with women who are in prison. And that includes women who are in prison in their very own communities that are just waiting for the opportunity to get to the prison that we physically house women in. <laughs> But it's important to talk with women. One of the greatest gifts that I received in my incarceration was relationship with women. I was a certified law clerk my entire time in prison, so that gave me access to the entire prison. I was also the law clerk for confinement, the infirmary, and for death row, women who were on death row. And while I could only do so much to facilitate their legal needs, the greatest thing that I got for them was relationships windows into their own personal experiences and windows into their dreams and their future. And to get that full perspective, you know, from just that small space of one prison changed my life forever. Through looking into the windows, into the souls, into just the amazing people who they were, it gave me the ability to stand up for myself. And in standing up for myself, I can't imagine living in a world and not have, I don't, I physically don't have any sisters. I'm the only girl. But now I have sisters all over the world. Every sister that is incarcerated. I used to be someone who capitalized off women. I have a pimping tattoo from here to here. I learned from a very young age to seek out women who were vulnerable and to capitalize off of their weaknesses for my own personal gains and benefits. It was in prison that I was able to look at a woman that I'm able to connect with the <laughs> sister beside me and find love and to see love. So while we're tearing down and we're preparing to organize against women prison, understand that there are women that are in there that are in prisons that are greater than the actual place that they're housed. So as we're chipping away from the system, we need to also chip away from that internal prison that was placed on us way before we got to these jails and these prisons and these work release and probation and parole and all those other spaces. So if you're not connected with women on the inside, it's plenty of prisons, plenty of women to connect with and listen. Allow them to share. Because a lot of times when people are approaching us, when even me now, you know, because I can speak for myself, it's almost like a talking seal. It's like this formerly incarcerated woman can talk. No, I'm just one of many women. One of many women. 
So listen, access, opportunity. The young man, Dominique, earlier said, you know, we have this idea that everyone is just kind of at the bottom of the pole and we need a teacher. Some people just need access and opportunity. Empower these women to tear down the prisons that ensnare them. We'll start a more in-depth interview with Jody next week. Stay tuned. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512, or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.